Welcome. My name is Ashley Jackson, and it is my pleasure to welcome all of our panelists and our audience to today's discussion. We'll be talking about what can be done to improve the accountability and oversight of irregular, hybrid, and sub-state security forces. Today's event is co-convened with the Global Public Policy Institute, otherwise known as GPPI, and hosted by the Center for the Study of Armed Groups at ODI. The center aims to influence engagement with armed groups and policy uh, around them through timely original on the ground research. And the analysis we're gonna discuss today is a stellar example of that kind of work. Over the past two decades, Western states have increasingly sought to partner with these kinds of hybrid and sub-state forces. At times it has been part of counterterrorism efforts. At other times they've sort of relied on these forces as de facto security providers in conflict and fragile environments. Now, while these forces might be quick to mobilize, they come with substantial risks, including human rights abuses and criminality. Exerting control and oversight over these forces has been an ongoing battle for the US and other governments engaged in partnerships with them. Today's discussion draws on an intensive study of seven such irregular forces in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, um, and looking at those through the present from 2009. And the objective of this work was to really understand how, and indeed if, you can mitigate the risks these forces present. I should mention that the report entitled Regulating Irregular Actors Can Do Diligence Checks Mitigate the Risks of Working with Non-State and Sub-State Forces was co-published with GPPI and was generously funded by the Norwegian and Dutch governments. It's available on our website and I think we'll be popping a link to it into our chat as well. Following an opening round of questions and comments from our panelists, we'll be taking questions from the audience. I'd very much like to encourage as much interaction and debate as possible. So please do use the chat function to throw us any questions you, you think of as, as the panel is going on or as, as we begin discussion. To talk about these experiences and challenges, we have a fantastic panel lined up. It includes the report author, Erica Gaston, who is also a non-resident fellow with GPPI. We also have Carter Malkazian, former special assistant for strategy to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, as well as the author of the forthcoming book, The American War in Afghanistan. From the office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, we have Johan Olhagen, where he works on due diligence and engagement with security forces. And finally, our discussant, Ivan M. Nielsen, is the former Danish Special Representative for the Syria Crisis. He has since left that post, but he'll be speaking in his personal capacity, reflecting on those and other experiences. Now, without further ado, I'll turn over to our author, Erica, and ask her to tell us a bit more about her research and her findings. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ashley. Um, thank you all for tuning in, um, especially for those of you coming in from the East Coast. And so starting your Monday off right at 9 a.m. with this event. Um, as Ashley mentioned, what we're going to talk about today is get into the question of whether you can use due diligence checks or other sorts of mechanisms or controls 
to constrain the risks posed by local forces. And we're gonna be drawing on research. I've been doing field research in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria from 2009 up to the present, but we're hoping to really use that as a launching pad. And we've got some great other panelists to bring out perspectives beyond just the US practice and talk about the really difficult issues of, of what happens when you are engaging in environments where non-state armed groups and local partners are a reality. Now, of course, the idea of partnering with local forces is not new. The U.S. funded a range of different guerrillas, rebels, other proxies during the Cold War. Since 2001, we've had a new wave of this, and a range of tribal forces, clans, militias, or other local forces have been important partners in different global counterterrorism operations or in different counterinsurgency or stabilization contexts. But while these partnerships are not new or that all that infrequent, they're still pretty controversial. And that's because a lot of these groups come with a long record of war crimes or abuses. They may be linked to other criminal networks or warlords or, or even terrorist groups themselves. And US forces or US officials are of course not ignorant about some of these risks or some of the drawbacks of working with these groups. And so what we've increasingly started to see is a response that goes something like, okay, we still have to work with these you know, risky actors because we have decided for whatever reason that they're the, the best or only partners in a given situation, but we're gonna try and see if we can do something about those risks. We're gonna see if we can do a better job of it this time. And that's really what the report is looking at is how some of those practices or efforts to address this have, have played out or not. So when I talk about these risks or these practices, what am I talking about? I think it's helpful to just walk through a couple of the examples that we bring out in the report and give you some, some concrete sense of how officials are trying to deal with us on the ground. So I was in Afghanistan in 2009, along with Ashley Jackson and some of the other members of the panelists here. And at the time I was working on civilian protection issues, um, so civilian casualties and issues like that. At the time, 2009, 2010, it was the height of the counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan. So it, you know, the big mantra was winning hearts and minds, addressing issues with the Afghan government, including corruption or abuses, and trying to win communities back to the Taliban. And one of the big initiatives at the time, and as part of this, um, was to try to mobilize community, tribal, or local forces against the Taliban to sort of raise up these local counterinsurgents. And you know, it, there was some, you know, a lot of people thought, hey, you have to do this in a country like Afghanistan where you have this decentralized local, um, you know, local control is really important. But the idea was also instantly controversial. If there is a country whose history would make you think twice about funding militias, it should be Afghanistan. So in the past, prior to 2001, the mobilization and over-reliance of militias had contributed to government collapse. It had led to a bloody civil war in the 1990s with huge atrocities on all sides. Um, and it had even led to the creation of transnational terrorist networks, so notably Al-Qaeda. And so there were all of these warning signs. And then in addition to that, post-2001, US forces had worked a lot with different militias or tried to fund other quasi-state initiatives and most had backfired. They sort of ended up empowering pre-existing militias or enabling warlords and generating a lot of predatory behavior and conflict. And so when the idea came around in 2009 of another round of mobilizing local forces, there was lots of critique and there was lots of pushback from other US officials, from international actors, from Afghans most vociferously. But the response was, look, this time it's gonna be different. 
you know, U.S. Special Forces said, look, we're not going to work with pre-existing militias. We're going to work with genuine community forces. And we're going to also have a range of these other checks and safeguards to keep these forces in line. So for the Afghan local police, which is the, the program name that, that this initiative emerged into, we're going to be subject to three different layers of vetting and oversight. So vetting and oversight by community elders, and then also by the Afghan Ministry of Interior, and also by the soft forces who would be operating in the area, or perhaps other U.S. officials who were working down at a local level nearby. There were also going to be additional codes of conduct and program restraints on where they could operate, on how big they could get, or prohibiting from things that had proved really risky in the past. For example, not allowing them to get engaged in detention operations. They would also be given longer training, including on human rights and laws of war specifically. They were also built in disciplinary actions and sanctions to try and enforce this. So sanctions in terms of from the Afghan ministry that was supposed to be in charge of them, but also directly bilaterally from some of the US forces and officials. So special forces had a rule that they were supposed to cease contact with abusive forces or those that appeared linked to warlords. From 2014 on, at least perhaps before, the US also applied the Leahy law to the local force programs. The Leahy law requires that foreign security units be cut from US funding where there is credible information of human rights violations. So taking all of this together, that's a pretty robust menu of checks. And the implementation was definitely far from perfect. We can maybe get into that more in question and answer, but it's just worth noting that this panoply of checks and safeguards stayed throughout the life of the program, it was funded for about a decade, you know, and it continued to have this sort of apparatus of different checks and controls. Now you might just say, okay, but this was a particular moment in Afghanistan. You know, this was a counterinsurgency fused moment of good governance and population protection. And that's what led to all of these due diligence measures and checks. But then I started working in Iraq more and in Syria and looking at some of the UF, US efforts to counter the Islamic State. As part of the anti-ISIL campaign in Iraq, the US sponsored some 20,000 to 40,000 Sunni tribal forces sort of revamped Sons of Iraq or Saho initiative for those of you who are familiar with that. The U.S. also provided support to a range of different opposition or non-state armed groups in Syria from 2012 on. So both the State Department and the CIA provided support to parts of the Free Syrian Army fighting against Assad. And then there were even greater types of support and more direct and overt assistance with Syrian forces who were fighting against ISIL. So particularly with the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces in Northeast Syria. And across all of these different Iraqi and Syrian initiatives, you saw some of the same due diligence or risk mitigation techniques. So you had vetting based on security or CT concerns. So for example, looking at their profile or links to bad actors, but also based on conduct. So most of these programs applied either the Leahy law or some version of the human rights infused Leahy law standard. There were also formal protocols, codes of conduct, or at least well-known red lines. Several of the programs involved direct training on tactical issues or on the weapon system, but also on conduct and legal concerns. So for example, the first Syria train and equip program, which Congress created in late 2014, Syrian forces were vetted against a panoply of criteria. If they passed it, they were brought out to Turkey and to Jordan and given what one official described as the gold standard of IHL training. They had then had this elaborate pledge that sort of, it's in the report and you should take a look at it because it's just, a fascinating sort of um, you know, boilerplate version or, or streamlined version of core IHL protections. 
There were also then, you know, in addition to the sort of training and the codes of conduct and the standard, they had a range of oversight and monitoring mechanisms. And this ranged from some of what's standard in foreign security assistance, so third party monitoring and reporting to elaborate weapons tracking, but also, and particularly on the Syria cases, I think there's a lot of this in the report, what there was was a ton of US staff time getting really granular on these forces and what they were doing, despite all of the obstacles involved in them being thousands of miles away. So you would have State Department officers in DC making nightly calls to Syrian commanders or community leaders to investigate claims of red lines crossed. For the CIA funding, free Syrian army commanders would be called into intelligence hubs in Jordan and Turkey and they'd face this sort of murder board of representatives from different intelligence agencies. So like the US, but also Saudi, Qatar, you know, UAE, the UK, and they'd have to debrief on operations and support written reports. Those that had received the tow missiles, the anti-aircraft missiles had to submit video reports and bring back spent missile casings. And obviously a lot of that goes also to intelligence gathering and all other reasons. But it's interesting that a lot of the FSA fighters that I that I spoke to and who went through the process said that they got a lot of questions on their record. So they would be questioned on allegations of atrocities either by their affiliates or by groups in their area. And where red lines were crossed, some groups were cut. You know, not obviously as, as a, not always perfectly, not as much as in some cases you might want, but also not infrequently. So there were cases of you know, armed groups that had, for example, abused detainees. And when those videos surfaced online, they're cut from US funding. So what we start to see here um, across Afghanistan and in Syria and Iraq is a trend line, um, you know, a somewhat common approach of urbanizing. It's not universal, not necessarily a boilerplate toolkit. And of course, there are some exceptions, which maybe we can get into in the later discussion. But there was this growing sense that hey, you can apply some of the same standards you'd expect in regular security assistance to irregular forces. And that these are the de minimis due diligence checks you should put in place with these sort of forces. And that's noticeable for a couple of reasons. And, and then I'll, I'll, I'll wind up and let some other speakers get in there. Um, you know, first, because this doesn't really fit the stereotype of what you think of when you think about the US working with shadowy militia partners, checking in on their behavior and asking them to, to pledge to IHL. And second, it is by and large not how other states have tended to approach the risks of local forces. Partly this is because most other Western states are not supporting non-state armed groups and sub-state forces as much as the US, but where they have done so, they certainly are not getting down to a unit specific level of vetting or doing detailed tracking. When I had discussions with European diplomats, their common response was that they weren't sure, that one, that they weren't sure that these mechanisms would work, and there's a lot in the report to suggest that it's correct. But there's also would say, we don't have the resources to do this. They would say, we're, our solution is you don't work with non-state armed actors whom we consider to be riskier forces, at least legally, in environments that we have no way to control. Now, can I just jump in there and ask um, a question, which is, you know, should we have been doing that? Was this the right approach? I mean, a lot of your research shows that you know these oversight mechanisms are incredibly costly and time-consuming. I mean, you've just given a number of really great examples, um, without a lot of evidence of showing that they limit the risk. So, in your opinion, or in the opinion of those you interviewed, should have the decision been initially not to work with these groups at all? I mean, in some situations. Yes, the, the right answer is probably not to fund these groups at all. 
rather than to pretend that you can address risks that are either inherent to the forces in question or to the situation. And another issue where risk mitigation measures or these sort of practices can get really tricky or really dangerous is where they hide that reality. So where they allow us to think that we can address risks that really cannot be reduced. And this is also something that comes up a lot in the report is that, you know, because these they present the idea that they can address some of the problems to say, OK, well, all of our concerns about human rights or long term security risks or political risks can be overcome, that this makes it easier for the programs to get authorized and to win approval, even in situations where maybe it should have been a do not fund situation. Um, and another issue that popped up a lot was whether these due diligence practices, which are often sort of technical add-ons or take the place at a more tactical or programmatic level, whether they end up sort of satisfying or satisficing for larger choices or systematic approaches that might be more effective. So US officials and human rights activists I would talk to alike would say that they were off too worried that they would see things like human rights training or vetting being used to sort of check the box that human rights concerns were met in a way that deflected attention from the larger questions you point out of, is the right answer simply not to fund this group because of their human rights record? So I think there definitely are some warning signs about going down this route and, and believing that this can solve all of the issues and especially of doing this sort of pro forma technical checks without a deeper risk mitigation calculus. However, I'd, on the same time, I'd be hesitant about throwing the baby out with the bathwater and abandoning the idea of any scrutiny and accountability, simply because in, in today's world, it's, it's not entirely possible to avoid working with non-state or sub-state forces, and they do come with real risks. So that does suggest that you can't entirely abandon the idea of risk mitigation, although it could stand to be improved. No, and I think that's a, a really good, a very nuanced point, but a really important one and the perfect segue to jump to Carter, who can talk about some of those real world um, dilemmas from the, the policymakers angle. And I wanted to ask you, Carter, to talk a bit more about your Afghanistan experience, although, of course, I know you've worked on a number of contexts, including Syria and elsewhere, and, and could offer insights from that. But from your time with the US government, both on the ground in Afghanistan and from DC, can you tell us a little bit more about how these dilemmas and challenges manifested, what was driving them, and what you saw as being, um, you know, what would have been the right approach? Um, thank you, Ashley. And I'm really happy to be here. Um, Eric, a great report. I really appreciate you capturing all the stuff on um, Syria um, and just getting it down in, in, in the record there. Um, Ashley, very much looking forward uh, to, to your new book, uh, Negotiating Survival. Um, so it, it, it's really an honor to be here with everyone. Um, regarding um, local forces um, in Afghanistan, so I spent about two years in Garmster District, Helmand Province, and that was in 2009 um, to 2011. And that's, I, I had seen some of this work previously on the ground in Anbar. Um, and in Kunar a little bit, but it's where in Garmster that I was involved to a much, much greater um, extent. And the real concern we had when we arrived was that um, Garmster was still fairly violent. There was a, a large number of Marines now in the, in the district, but it was very hard to protect the local elders. It was very hard to secure them and very hard to get them to work with the government because they were always under a, um, a threat of intimidation. And we didn't have enough forces to protect everyone in every village. Uh, the Afghan army 
they didn't have enough forces. Plus, they didn't really understand the local dynamics that much better than we did. I mean, in some ways they did, but in other ways they, they did not. Um, and the police were, were too small. So we looked at the problem and that, okay, we need to increase the number of police, but we can't get more police right now because the elders and everyone is too scared to give anyone um, to, to give young men to do anything. So we have to have a way of, of protecting them. And we talked to the district governor about it. The district governor was worried about it himself. We talked to the government about it. And uh, the idea that came up is, well, we should allow some of these elders to be able to protect themselves, to be able to basically allow their sons or their, um, their nephews or certain other people in the village to carry arms on and to be able to protect against these kind of small attacks that are so intimidating and so damaging. Um, so we went forward with that process, um, which was all um, above board and known by our hires and, and, and everything else. Um, we went forward with that. And the idea was that allow a, a few people in every village to um, have, our, not every village, sorry, in certain villages um, to be able to protect themselves. But the, the requirement was going to be that those people gonna, are going to join the police. Um, not at first. Um, it, it, first, a few would carry arms in the village and others would join the police, but eventually they'll rotate back and forth and get everyone in the police. So the police would increase in number. The police would then be able to secure things effectively. And, and the village people throughout the district would be, would be more involved. Um, and it took a little bit of work to get police agreement on that through their leadership. But, you know, the, the governor and other people wanted it to happen. So it, it, it eventually happened. Um, some of the, the characteristics of this were these are kind of small, multiple detachments throughout the, um, throughout the district. So there wasn't like one warlord controlling everyone. Um, it was a variety of diff different people, and some of these groups didn't agree with each other. Um, so they were small, and I liked that because that meant it was controllable. They were defending their own area. That made it that easier. And then also, these were occurring in places where Marines were pretty much already located. We weren't going and saying, hey, let's put some forces way down there by the border or somewhere where we aren't. Now, while that sounded wonderfully like Lawrence of Arabia and something tremendously adventurous to do, it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and really would have put our funding and, and human rights and other issues at risk. So we didn't think that was a good idea. So that goes on for about a year and a half. And slowly, the majority of those forces um, become part of the police. The police expand in number. And that's in, a, that's in uh, middle of, so of 2011, a few months before I was going to leave. Then the ALP program comes into existence. It was in existence in 2010, but really wasn't affecting Garmsir. 2011, it starts to come into, um, Hellman come into Garmsir, and the idea is, well, let's, uh, the, the instructions from hires, you're going to recruit more people in, in, in Garmsir. Um, and so I would kind of have, I had two minds about that. One was that, well, we have our thing going here, and we're kind of on the back end of it now. And so why do we need 300 more ALP? I'd rather have 300 more police if that's what you're going to do than have a, have a separate force. On, on, on the other hand, you think that, well, 300 men, that, can, you know, that, that, that could be helpful. So one feels a little bit torn about it. Um, definitely concerns about how we're going to control 300 more people. So we had certain tribal leaders who had wanted to have more men for a long time. So well, I should have 50 men. And I'd get into giant arguments with them and say, you're not going to have 50 men. You have 10. Um, or you have 20. That's all that we're going to do here. We're not going to go beyond that. But then when ALP comes in, well, now they can have a huge number more. So that was a that was an issue there. I think I probably only have one or two minutes um, uh, left. 
so that's kind of the Garmsphere perspective. After that, I worked up in Kabul um, with, uh, with, with General Dunford um, as his political advisor. So from there, I saw things from a, from a broader, much, much larger perspective. And I guess there's two things I'd want to bring up here. One is that this question still remained, is it better to be small or is it better to be large? Um, and so you could see places like in Marja and Argandab where large work pretty well. Um, and, and I think Erica could probably say that the history of some of those units is not, is not that bad. And the other place, you see places where large didn't work so well, like Kunduz easily comes up, but even Panjwe in the South, or Zari in the South, there's not the, the best examples of strong programs, and they went very large pretty quickly. So there's this real question here about that. The other thing I'd want to say from the Kabul perspective is that um, we, we had to be careful about being too close to the people we were working with. Um, now, you, all, you kind of have to be close, but you start to see the things they're suffering. You start to see the pain they're going through. You start to see that, they're, that maybe a family member is killed. Maybe one of them is killed. Maybe they're fighting the insurgency. The insurgents are shooting them when they're captured. These are all the kinds of things that happen. And it tugs at you when you see these people you've worked with killed. You're not happy to see someone die. But the danger there is that when you're that close and you feel that pain so much, one can turn a blind eye to the vengeance that that ALP or other militia force will take. And I think it's a very natural thing to, to be in. Now, in Garmster, I never saw that because Garmster never reached that kind of escalatory violence. But it did exist in other places, and I saw other people torn by it. So my point here is that it is really important at the higher level that you maintain the focus on human rights. The Leahy law remains in, in, in effect, that even if it's not used in certain places, that people are aware of it um, and aware of the kind of repercussions and dangers of going down um, these kind of paths. Um, if, if those things are removed, I think it makes it easier for us to turn a blind eye, which I don't think is something that, that we want to do, and we can talk more about that a little bit later on. So I'm pretty sure I've gone my time. I had a variety of other points here, but I'm sure we'll have questions and be able to knock those out. Um, thank you again. Thank you, Carter. I think that was a really useful intervention, not only because I think you put further meat on the bones of, of the structure that Erica laid out of all those dilemmas, but I think something that we don't talk enough about is that human factor. Um, and the, the inability to be partial or to, to see the big picture. And I think it's really unique and I think helpful for this discussion that you have both of those, those angles. Um, and undoubtedly we'll come back to talk about this more in, in the discussion. But I wanted to move on to Johan to ask a little bit about your work at the Office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights. And to get you to talk a little bit about your due diligence efforts. I mean, Erica talked about the Leahy Law, the US frameworks, but I was wondering if you could tell us from your perspective, the kind of policies and, and interventions you try to further um, and the challenges that you and your colleagues have seen on the ground. Thank you very much, Ashley. And, and uh, it's great to, to be among uh, this very distinguished level of, of uh, colleagues and, and experts. Um, I will speak on behalf of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Obviously, the, the United Nations is, is a very big uh, organization and, and we are engaging with non-state uh, armed groups and, and actors uh, across the globe. So there are many different uh, experiences. But uh, what I can talk about more broadly is the human rights due diligence policy and, and some of the 
the principles and, and experiences that underpins it. Uh, now, I want to say from the beginning that uh, this, strictly speaking, the policy doesn't apply to non-state armed groups uh, because it's it's one of the exceptions what was um, has been revoked. But it has been uh, used that sometimes the, the the policy framework also to work with non-state actors because it has made sense in in the context that we are working. But um, the background of, of the human rights due diligence policy in the United Nations really goes all the way back to, to Congo when the UN uh, in DRC 2010, when the UN was supporting the Congolese government. And uh, there were challenges when we saw that there were human rights violations uh, being committed in, in the context of support by the UN. So the UN took a step back and, and we thought about how, how can we do this better in a way that are consistent with the United Nations own values and with our obligations under international law. And at the same time allows us to work with some of those actors which are high risk, but, but that's also part of why we are engaging with security forces uh, uh, because, because they need uh, that kind of support uh, at times, but we need to do it in a way that that is uh, coherent and consistent. Uh, now, a lot of, of that approach, as I said, uh, is also relevant to non-state actors in terms of that it really starts with uh, uh, the same question as, as, as we heard was posed by the previous speakers is why do you engage and, and, and what do you try to get out of it? Um, and for us, from a human rights point of view, it's, it's, it's always been that, you know, can we engage uh, in such a way that it actually benefits the right holders, uh, the, the communities that we are trying to protect, because it's not always that the answer is yes. And, and then I think you have a big question uh, there from the outset. Um, but if you can engage in sort of a, in a way that is consistent with do no harm, uh, then we do think that it's very important to have a full understanding of, of all contexts and to do this very thorough analysis uh, of the risks, whether they are reputational risk or risks related to the actual engagement or risk to people because you do engage, risk to your staff uh, or others. So that analysis is also a very basic part of human rights due diligence policy to do a risk assessment before you engage. And then when we uh, um, have done that, uh, we look at the risks and, and see what's, what are the kind of measures that we can take that would mitigate them. Um, and, and then does that bring down the risk to an, an acceptable level? And if we're comfortable with that, that level is down uh, and the risk is, is fine, then we uh, try to uh, put in place those mitigation measures through a dialogue with those who are receiving the support. And, 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 and that is really important that you, you work out those mitigation measures with them and saying, you know, we want to engage with you. This is our objective. You're being very straightforward and, and, and explaining that this is what we need. And if there are violations that would happen during our support, uh, then we need to talk about it because uh, we cannot continue to support you if there are uh, uh, human rights violations or abuses uh, going on uh, in, in, in this context. And then you look at what they can do to mitigate those risks. And the human rights due diligence policy, when we engage with security forces, it's really a policy for engagement. But of course, there is an, 
there is an end uh, sort of uh, situation if there is no traction for bringing down the risk at the end you may have to uh, to postpone the support and and so on so uh, but that's not the aim of it and i think these are interesting sort of questions that also uh, when you're engaging with non-state actors is you know um, where if we analyze it and the risks um, are there how can we engage while not doing harm to ourselves or the communities and and still being effective and then how can we monitor because that's also an ongoing process that doesn't stop with that you do a, an, an analysis and decide of okay this it's okay for us to go forward now then you need to be able actually to monitor it and see that that you are um, in fact uh, that the mitigation measures are working and that the risk is lower so this is another thing from human rights to diligence policy that is um, really important to uh, to assess your ability to engage and the final uh, thing that i wanted to say uh, that is interesting with human rights due diligence policy is that it also looks at the cost of not engaging because there are uh, certain situations where uh, there is a high risk but uh, if the UN does not engage with security forces the, uh, perhaps there is no one else who, who is able to on, on these issues that we work or support them on. So all of these things we take into account and, and then we um, uh, it's it's the most senior uh, UN leader in peace operations, or if it's in non-mission settings, it's it's the UN agency that is uh, uh, providing the support. Uh, who who takes that decision uh, if if they feel comfortable with applying the support? I will stop there, and I'm I'm sure we will have further uh, opportunity to discuss uh, how this might apply in in reality. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Johan. I think you touched on a number of threads um, that we've we've sort of um, talked about earlier. But the cost of not engaging is is an interesting one, and it, it touches on what Carter said about the ALP and Garmsiers. Often, these forces are a force of last resort. It's because you don't think you have a lot of other options, and these might be the the last bad, but uh, the least bad. Sorry, but the that calculation of you know, the cost of engagement versus what if we don't engage, I think is a very tricky calculation to make. Uh, and with that, <laughs> I will hand it over to our discussant, Ivan M. Nielsen, to talk about some of his personal reflections on all of this and, and what he sees uh, as the implications for engagement. Ivan? Many thanks, Ashley, and um, also many thanks for the invitation to, to join today's discussion on a very uh, even highly relevant and, and timely topic. And particular thanks to you, Erica, for your presentation. Uh, I, for one, learned a lot. Um, if I may uh, chip in with a couple of angles um, and actually turn some of them into questions. The one is um, to point out or to highlight a, a difference between the different cases that we have heard about today. And that is obviously while in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, uh, that support um, takes place uh, in a context where there are strong partnerships with the uh, respective national governments. And, and that's, uh, as we all know, always not the case uh, for Syria, where it's somewhat uh, almost an opposite uh, foreign policy approach. And that is that the US, Europe, and, and most of the region uh, 
uh, apply tools, sanctions, refrain from normalization and the like uh, to put pressure on the regime and its allies for, for Damascus to engage in a, in a political process uh, as per Security Council Resolution 2254. Um, so against that, uh, one question um, would be um, if the panelists could share some, some views on how does that uh, have a bearing on the modalities for the support we've heard about today? Any similarities, any differences? Uh, that's one. And secondly, how, how is it best ensured that uh, the support we talk about today to, to, um, to local armed actors uh, not only is compatible with broader policy objectives, but actually enforces the broader policy objectives? So that's, that's the first one. Um, the second one is uh, um, moving a bit closer to the field, um, and that is um, I'm very interested to hear the, the panelists' views on whether there is a scope for involving uh, local civilian actors, not least civil society, in the determination and assessing feasibility of support to local uh, armed actors. And uh, let me throw in there as well. Uh, um, is there room for uh, an enhanced involvement also to support, if not pave the way for enhanced uh, civilian oversight over the very same local actors uh, once either the armed conflict is over or uh, the security situation has improved? So those were my, my, my two cents for now. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, a lot of ground to cover in questions. So I think what I might do is let the panelists respond to whatever elements of that um, they would like, given uh, given what you've laid out. And maybe I'll start in the order we had the panel. So Erica, Carter, and then Johan. Erica? Great questions. And thank you all for these, the panelists' contributions were amazing. I think it's a really good point that you brought out, teasing out the difference between obviously the Syria context and the Iraq and Afghanistan. And this question in terms of how that fundamental legal or, or conflict nature affects the modalities is, I, I would say, yeah, yes and no. Um, so one, yes, I mean, absolutely. Every time I talk to anyone about the Syria cases, they would say the, the risks are so much higher. I mean, it's from your threshold questions about intervention to every single level of how that affects your ability to engage with Syrian forces given the many more obstacles to actually accessing the territory, verifying anything, and just the sort of fraught nature in there. So certainly that comes into it. It certainly makes the attention or the worry about these sort of risks a lot higher. And in the case of Syria, in some cases, it led to a level of sort of risk mitigation that absolutely hamstrung the possible benefits of any program. So there, you know, it had costs in a couple of different ways, in addition to making it more difficult. At the same time, I would say that some of the issues that came up in terms of how can you actually constrain local actors from engaging in human rights risk, how can you actually get information? Some of those same things recurred, whether you were talking about a far-flung part of Iraq or you know, where they were talking about a, another part of Afghanistan where maybe at the height of the surge the u.s had some presence but at a lot of the periods of the engagement had had very little access because u.s forces were, were stuck on bases or consulates and so the things that you know a lot of like the nitty-gritty of how do you actually verify human rights complaints or how do you actually try and provide reinforcement of standards takes a degree of local knowledge and presence on the ground that 
can equally be absent even when the U.S. is nominally engaging with the state partner. So uh, that's why I'd say yes for the modalities. It can play both ways. And I'm sure Carter would have some interesting perspectives on that. On the last point, which I think is also really crucial to aid to raise in terms of local civilian partner, I would say that where these mechanisms worked the best was where there was actually some harmony engagement with local communities. So that was true if you wanted to find best case examples of where the local forces in Afghanistan worked well, it was where communities did actually want this. Communities picked the forces. They had some level of, you know, whether it was a community structure or some degree of control and resilience, and they were actually able to, to assert some agency over it. It actually often ended up, it could be the best case for that local community versus where U.S. forces went in and sort of, you know, one military official said it was sort of like a smash mouth approach and just in and out, whoever raised their hand was tapped for it. It was terrible. And I think that's also true from a lot of people that were working on the Syria programs where they felt that they had the sort of tight connection with other community actors, civil society, journalists, citizen groups to actually like give a little bit of verite of what was happening on the ground, then it was possible. But those sort of local relationships also depend on taking a degree of space and time and having the resources to really understand the situation. And, you know, which goes up to the larger connection of, of how you try and get accountability in these areas. I'll stop there. Um, in terms of meeting policy objectives, the thing I think is really important here is that policy objectives change. So our policy objective, let's take Syria, the main policy objective was to defeat the Islamic State, um, in which the, the SDF, you know, fit, fit what that policy objective was very well. As the conflict go um, de-escalates, our policy objectives shift a bit. Our policy objectives become a little bit more about the balance of power in the region. Our policy objectives become a little bit more about developing an effective state structure. Um, and in that sense, the SDF's role is much more complicated and doesn't fit the, fit the objectives as well. And it's extremely hard in the creation of policy to um, design a, a, or, or design, create relations with a non-state actor that are going to meet shifting policy goals. Um, and, and, and that to me has been just a fundamental issue. In terms of local civilian relationships, um, I think it's it's very difficult for us to um, so I'm not sure that the local civilian relationships on their own are going to prevent bad behavior. Um, in, in in the experiences that I've seen, in the end, the people with guns tend to trump things, which kind of leads to a separate set of actions you might want to take. I do think it's important to maintain relations and keep on hearing what civilians are saying. Um, involving NGOs and civil society and such and monitoring, I think that's a perfectly good idea that people should do and, and we've done in the past. Um, I just, I, I think it's probably not going to be sufficient. So definitely do it, definitely listen, because if you're not listening, you're going to miss problems that are occurring. But the, the, the outside actor has to be the decision maker and has to be the arbiter of punishment. It doesn't have to be, but I'm inclined to think it needs to be um, in the end. And, and some of that has led me regularly to kind of lean towards keeping the forces smaller um, because smaller creates um, less potential for large-scale human rights abuses. Smaller um, is a little bit easier for civilians to, to monitor and watch. Um, and then I also think about, you know, particularly in the Afghanistan case, less so in the Syria case, but 
in the Afghanistan case, would it have been possible to kind of pick just strategic points where you want to be having these forces and not have them larger? Because once they're larger, and this gets a little bit to the modality of aid, once it's going through the central government throughout the nation, it is much easier for interference to occur from bad actors. And it's much harder for us to monitor. If it's a few cases where we are essentially distributing the aid, it makes it more, we are more able to enforce conditionality. We are more able to cut things off. Um, we're less vulnerable to the influence of bad actors. At least that's my thinking. I can't say, I mean, I don't want to be too definitive in anything I just said, but I think I'll stop there. Maybe I can actually, I'm going to ask a follow up before we go to Johan. To me, and I may, maybe Erica would, would disagree, but I remember being in meetings with, I think, you and Kate Clark and a bunch of other people in like 2009 or 10 at the beginning of, of ALP. And there was this tension between um, what works in one part of Argandab cannot be scaled. So the opposite of what, what Carter was saying, this real pressure to scale things up. It's only a useful approach if we can cut, we can tackle the root of the insurgency and really, uh, if it's in one or two districts, then it doesn't really, it, it's not the solution we're looking for is, is I remember us hearing at the time and I'm sure it's still a tension. But I guess my question to you is, is how much is, is scalability and that going big, the enemy of having, as Carter said, you know, really tailored, effective, kinds of oversight and accountability approaches. Oh, sorry, it's to me. I thought you were talking, answering <laughs> back to Carter. No. <laughs> um, and then I'll give the floor to Johan, but I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on that quickly. Right. I mean, no, I, I, I think that, that that issue is actually, I mean, you could see the same issue in a lot of ways that the US or other international actors trying to engage at a local level. So not just whether you're working with local forces, but when you're working with local justice mechanisms or local community mechanisms. You know, if you you could get it to work really well if you spend a lot of time and a lot of resources in one community, um, but every single community is different and getting that tailored result times, you know, 10,000 communities uh, can be really hard. So, you know, that's the, the bottom up sounds really good, but in fact, the bottom is wide is the problem. And so, yeah, and it, there is a question of whether the US would have the appetite to do that local strategy really well in every area, whether you are talking about a, a sort of governance initiative or whether you're talking about actually nurturing a more accountable force. Um, I will say that I think one of the kind of other things that I want to pull back into that too is I think this is why obviously not just the US, but a lot of states prefer to work with state institutions or state forces. It's not just because there is more legal cover, although that's part of it, but it's also because it's easier to work with institutions and have a scalable effect. Um, but I think, you know, it, the, the kind of tricky thing with that can be, you know, obviously a lot of state forces in these countries are no better in terms of accountability and rights abuses. And sometimes in particular areas, the state forces were worse. And so while it can seem like, okay, there's an institution in place that provides you accountability, we do have to ask whether that's actually meaningful accountability, even if they have more of the dressing for it. Yeah, that's a helpful answer. It's more complicated than my, my scale versus a <laughs> small is beautiful approach. But Johan, maybe I can move to you to respond to, to Ivan's comments. I think, you know, I'd be really curious to hear whatever you want to say, but I think in particular on the issue of civilian oversight and, and monitoring. Um, but I'll, I'll leave that to you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I've, I, 
this is a really interesting question, and I thought maybe I'll I'll pick up on on Ivan's di uh, distinction between different contexts and and so on. And and uh, when from the human rights point of view, when we are looking at an office of of how we if we should intervene or not, of course it it makes a huge different um, the normative framework of the actor that you're working with. So. Uh, some of them may have um, uh, a formal status if, if it's a, a conflict, and some of them may, in other be, uh, situations, have uh, basically be criminal elements. And uh, for the UN, when we engage, we have some kind of uh, an agreement with the host government. So uh, it's very important from that perspective to do the analysis right and, and to see what's our role in certain places. But uh, when it falls within our mandate to engage with someone, I think that uh, linked to that is then what's the obligation of that group? How do uh, actually how do we um, uh, promote human rights when we're discussing what kind of human rights obligation does that group have? And that, of course, depends on on the context. But sometimes something that I personally have found uh, being very useful is. To, to look at both the institutions as well as the individual's uh, commitments uh, because it may sometimes be a bit uh, unclear uh, what legal obligations, if any, they would have. But quite often some of these groups have an interest uh, in uh, showing that they have some kind of a, a commitment to, towards respecting human rights or, or international humanitarian law. And um, in the interest of uh, uh, protection. Uh, sometimes this is something that is very useful to explore and advocate upon. And and um, I've I've worked for a number of years, for example, during both conflict and post-conflict in in Nepal. Um, and and here both with uh, when the Maoist was a part of a um, uh, the conflict with the government, as well as armed groups. Uh, down in the Terai region, we really saw uh, playing out the wide spectrum of of engaging or not engaging and and and, and assessing what's in the best interest of of uh, the communities and how we can increase sort of a human rights protection for them. So it is uh, something that really to uh, to explore and there's perhaps also very much a, a link to the local communities in in what um, having a clear engagement with them and understanding for us as human rights monitors, it's very important to have a discussion with the communities to see what's helpful in the local context for us to come in as external actors. And sometimes it can just be to, um, uh, to get people together and to allow for domestic uh, uh, actors to, to actually sit down and, and find agreements. And sometimes it can be more facilitated uh, advocacy and, and, and so on. But I'll stop there for now. Thank you. Okay, great. I think we have a number of questions coming through the chat. So I will jump to some of those. Um, there's one very easy question to answer, which is, what was the name of the district in Afghanistan that Carter was talking about? And that was, of course, Garamsir. And the title of his one of his earlier books is The War Comes to Garamsir. So uh, Florian Westphal, I 
I would recommend that to you as well. <laughs> um, but let me get to, to some of the less easy to answer questions. Uh, Rima asks about the nature of some of these forces, um, specifically in reference to Somalia and Iraq, that a lot of these are clan-based militia groups recognized as formal state actors, but they're really kind of non-state actors dressed up as state actors, in, in her words. Um, I wonder if Erica, maybe you wanna you wanna take that one, um, but I might round up a couple of other questions for the panelists before we we move to you. Um, Heather from GISF uh, asks another big question, which I would allow any of the panelists to 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 respond to. How do you take into account the risks for your staff of engaging with these groups? You know, it might be against some counter-terror laws in the countries they are working in or uh, according to donor governments or international frameworks. Um, so how do you navigate those risks? And I suppose that might be a question for Johan. So maybe we'll go to Erica and then Johan, and then we have a couple of other questions for Carter and Ivan. Thank, I thank Reva for this question, I love it. I, I didn't have the time to get into different status designations in my talk because we're trying to keep it short. Um, but you make an excellent point, and this is uh, this significantly informed which cases I focused on. So a lot of people would say, I definitely have, as Rima points out, some groups from both the Afghanistan and the Iraq case studies who have been given some color of law. So they were brought under state institutions, maybe they wear state uniforms, maybe they were legalized by a law of parliament in the case of the, um, the PMF, as Rima points out. Um, in Iraq, but often these, you know, they still report to their own command and control. They may only very loosely actually have a link with the state. A lot of them cycle in and out from being, you know, sort of militias by night and a uniformed officer by day. And often the reason that they're given some degree of legal title is in some way its own form of risk mitigation. So it's because, you know, foreign actors do not like to give funding to local forces and militias. And, and it certainly smooths the way. It makes it a lot easier to pay for them, a lot easier to count for them if you can kind of vest them at least partially under a state institution. But, you know, for most of these programs, the funding will only last for a couple of years. The ALP was exceptional for lasting 10 years. Um, and often, as soon as the funding dries up, they may go back to being militias. So this is exactly why, um, you know, in the report, we focus on what we call both purely non-state armed groups, which is almost all of them in Syria, but also some that I would call sub-state actors or quasi-official actors. And that's because in terms of a lot of the risks that they present and in terms of some of the challenges of how do you actually do accountability with them, um, the fact that they kind of have one foot in and one foot out and they're sort of still quasi-malicious is really, really important. So thank you for bringing up that point, Rima. That's great. Maybe we can go to Johan. Yeah, so this with um, security of, of staff is something that I really burn for. And um, I think that, first of all, it's a little bit different perhaps for United Nations compared to other staff. And for example, the Office of a High Commissioner for Human Rights, we, we, we would uh, always have some kind of a host country agreement that, that allows for our staff to work there. Um, uh, and in peace operations zone, we often have security council mandate. Uh, that, that so, so that but there is uh, uh, that kind of legal framework. But uh, that does not mean that uh, the risk necessarily there's uh, a legal recognition. But the risk is still there, and 
And we work in different ways. In some places, for example, we have international staff dealing with um, high situations which may present high risk to national staff. We have international interpreters. We may have international security advisors and, and so on. And in other cases, it's, it's really a, a judgment call. But um, I would say that uh, to, to work on the highest level, uh, with senior, if we're talking about my experience working with non-state actors, is that, that you work to make sure that you have um, an, um, uh, a support from the senior officers that can spread down so that, that you basically have an, um, a framework uh, of, of security in that you can refer to when you engage uh, on the ground, because otherwise uh, it's, it's, uh, it can be tricky uh, if you do not have that kind of support. But it's very much, an, an, um, again, it's an analysis and to build relationships. And, and, and for the UN, it's also about being seen as impartial uh, in the way that we work. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. But, you know, it underscores that engagement from a number of angles uh, can, be, can be risky. I want to go to Ivan and then Carter. And I'm kind of going to break up this, this question. It's a question on Syria. Um, and it comes from James Emerson. Can the panelists elaborate a bit more on the paradox that external support and engagement to certain groups, even with conditionality, um, creates in that it can empower certain armed groups and they become less responsive to the local and more responsive to the international? And Ivan, I'd love for you to talk about that more generally. But the second part of this question, um, Carter, is, is probably more up your alley. And, uh, James cites, since January, the SDF's expectation of a more predictable U.S. support since Biden took office has led to a more confrontational stance. And I wonder if you can sort of talk to those dynamics or or historical dynamics with the SDF. Uh, but Ivan, I'll, I'll shoot to you. Thank you. Uh, another very good question. And I guess no, um, no easy, at least not exhaustive answer. Uh, but I think, yeah, it is true that uh, the Syrian conflict has for sure seen that armed actors on, on, on both sides of the conflict lines and, and actually from left to right, they are, some of them have had and have linkages to, to actors outside the national boundaries of Syria. Um, um, and um, I think the best way to, to mitigate it and the best way to, or at least one way to mitigate it is to come back to what I touched upon earlier, and that is actually the uh, the uh, involvement knowledge um, of civilian actors in the, let's say, immediate area where the actors operate. Uh, I th I'm a firm believer in, in checks and balance provided uh, uh, from that side. I, I know it is not a, a, a quick fix, uh, it's something that has to be supported and built up over time, but I see that as, as one significant way of uh, mitigating those risks. And then obviously, uh, we broaden it a bit, uh, there are obviously uh, also international laws that are applicable should some of these actors subsequently be active outside Syria. And then ultimately, may obviously become political issues that are dealt with, uh, not necessarily by the UN, but by the structures of the UN, including the Security Council. Carter, maybe you can talk to the, to the US perspective on, on some of the issues. Yeah, that's a very good question. It gets right at the principal agent um, model, principal agent dynamics that affect most of our relations um, with other countries and with non-state groups. Um, so 
if there's a when we have divergence of aims, um, then it's going to be more difficult for us to um, enforce conditionality. And I mean, I do agree that the more money, the more empowerment that, that a group has, um, the the more difficult it may be um, to enforce concerns we have on on human rights. Um, the other thing that is going to be really problematic is if a group has multiple lines of support. So it's not if the assistance is not just coming from us, which is often the case. Um, but if they have contraband means of assistance, if they're getting other kinds of legitimate means of assistance from the government or from the community, um, then it becomes harder to get them to do what we want them to do. And that can be in the case of human rights or actually in the case of, of, of other things as well. Um, I, the, the SDF being a bit more confrontational right now, that doesn't surprise me. The more consistent our support looks, the more it looks like our support is going to be normal over time, the more confrontational people can be. Now, there's a trade-off there, though. So if you're not, I'm not, and there's a trade-off, and, and it's unclear which way is entirely the best way to go. But if you're not consistent, or if they think the support could go away, that can also lead to people fleeing, people not wanting to stand up, people think it's better to side with the adversary or just not to work with the United States at all. So there's these um, competing priorities one has to, um, to, to work with. I think it's important to have, in, in the conditionality one has, it's important that it not be absolute. So if the only thing we have to say to the SDF is if you don't um, abide by these human rights concerns, we're going to pull all support. That's not credible, um, and it's, it's just not a very good tool. The, we need to have other lesser things that we can do that are either carrots or punishments um, to make them, um, to, to make them um, cohere more with, with our interests. Um, two last kind of points here. One is this kind of problem I, does, to me, also lean towards how um, small can be more useful. In Garmster, we didn't have a lot of problems like this because our um, our goals and the tribal elders' goals were fairly similar. The tribal elder didn't want to die, and the tribal elder was at risk of dying if it didn't have our support. So that gave us better leverage. Now, if you're looking at a larger group, though, say like Razak and Kandahar, on uh, removing our support over human rights issues um, doesn't seem credible and he's not immediately at risk of death. So it, it doesn't have the same kind of effect. And then the last thing I want to say here on this particular issue does get to that um, death issue. For a lot of the actors that we work with, they are, their view, their, their timeline is much shorter than ours. They think about death a year, two years, five years ahead of time. Um, and you know, Rosick once told his Rosick's advisors once advising him, hey, you need to worry about some of these issues here. You need to do things while you're young because when you're older, you won't be able to, 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 to make changes. And Rosick said back, will I ever live to be that old? Will I ever become an old man? And of course, he didn't. Um, so that's a natural limitation on some of the leverage we have. I think I'll stop there. That's a, that's a pretty powerful anecdote. <laughs> um, Ivan, I wanted to go back to you a little bit on, on Syria to talk a little bit about the political constraints and taboos around engagement. And I was wondering if you would talk about how those factors sort of played into Syria as you see it and what, you know, in retrospect could have been done differently, if anything, to better navigate around those taboos, around those constraints, which, which Erica talked about as well in the beginning.
Was it a question for me, Ashley? You dropped out initially. Yes, sorry. I was trying to get you <laughs> to talk about the, the political constraints and taboos around no, uh, I, I engagement. Think, I think I forgot the question, so, but I didn't want to jump the gun if, uh, if Erica was about to respond. Um, I think uh, if we look back, um, I, I for sure think that if, if there had been, a, let's say, an even more coordinated approach, joined up approach from those countries that were willing to more actively support, uh, let's say, uh, the forces that were trying to push for changes in Syria from the beginning of the conflict. Um, in the early days, uh, that is, before uh, the conflict became even more geopoliticized and regionalized, the, the things may have gone in a different direction and, and for sure some better building blocks would have been established. Um, um, it may may not have been feasible to or realistic to get to what I'm what I'm talking about here because, as you also alluded to, there were some political constraints and and also as Carter was mentioning, uh, U.S. in particular, um, uh, also in the case of Syria, was providing significant uh, military support. Uh, but they, I think it's important to mention that they were uh, by far the only actor that uh, supported. Uh, some of the local armed actors in the early days of the conflict. Uh, I remember one of the first configurations, uh, uh, international configurations, somewhat discussing and, and trying to, uh, to address the Syrian conflict. It was the so-called core group made up of 11 countries. And they had a membership from Europe, from the US, and from the region. And I, if I'm not mistaken, somewhat the, uh, the, uh, the admittance ticket, the entry ticket to membership of that group was that you somewhat provided. Um, if not armed support, then close to armed support. So there was a, 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 a there were good collective efforts. Um, I, I do I cannot help but thinking that if there had been an even better coordinated and joined up approach, uh, some of it m could have been overcomable, some not also because obviously you were supporting both from the north, from Turkey, and from south in Jordan. Um, but then uh, as the conflict became more geopoliticized, then I think not even more joined up and collective approach would have made a big difference because uh, the turning point came obviously in 2015 when, when Russia intervened uh, even more militarily and, and for sure the same conflict became a truly a, a geopo geopolitical and, and, and regional conflict. Mm, thank you for that. Um, I'm keeping an eye on the clock and I suppose it's time to wrap up. So I'll give each of our, our panelists uh, a few minutes for any closing remarks or anything else they want to sort of highlight or raise questions about. Maybe we can start with Erica, then go to Carter, Johan, and, and finish with Ivan. Erica? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the questions that I get um, kind of the most frequently, especially in light of recent events, is, you know, will we see some of these in the future? And then how could we take it forward? What are some of the best practices? And I mean, already, for example, you look at the situation in Afghanistan, there's a lot of discussion whether further militia mobilization, you know, there are discussions of whether the U.S. or other groups would, would use local forces in Mali or in other places. And so there's definitely, I think, a very, you know, it's definitely relevant and necessary to think about, you know, how do you take the time to make sure that you're learning enough about communities to know where that kind of mobilization would be poisonous, to try to set some red lines and standards to monitor reports that forces you're supporting are conducting abuses or passing weapons on or other things. So I, th I think there's still a, a very important place for that. Um, 
what worries me when these sort of discussions get to what's happening in the future, or will we see these in other sort of low footprint engagements, because that's where they tend to come up, is that to get any form of effective due diligence takes resources, takes manpower on the ground, takes time to understand the dynamics, and also because you're fundamentally talking about behavior change and about, you know, any kind of change, whether you're talking about on a security level or profile or affiliation or on human rights, it's not a quick fix, but it takes reinforcement and it takes consistency. And so what worries me is that sort of the opposite of where a lot of these low footprint engages are heading to, you know, they'll turn US or, or all other actors will turn to militias as a sort of shortcut or quick fix. Um, and, and just apply these sort of due diligence checks as a, as a dressing to that. And that I think is really problematic. And I think that's where you're gonna get kind of the worst case scenario where you will not get accountability. You might even get these checks serving as sort of blinders because they sort of are signaling that we're just looking for quick fixes and not really thinking about the long-term cost or consequences of an engagement. So I'll, I'll leave you with a kind of long-term reflection I have um, on, on this matter. Um, and so it's, it's been kind of my experience that when we're involved in these conflicts, and especially think about like in the 2001 to 2012 time period, it felt so important to the country. It felt like you're doing something to protect the United States and whether you're in Iraq or you're in Afghanistan, you may not agree with why you're in Iraq or even why you're in Afghanistan but that you're there and trying to help get stability, trying to remove these kind of terrorist threats felt incredibly important. I especially remember this in, in, in Iraq um, in, in 2006 in Anbar, that really felt like we had to do something and, and, and make a difference. And many, many people felt that way. And so when the Anbar awakening was happening, all these tribal militias were being stood up. Um, a, a lot of commanders and such were willing to, let's just start arming them, let's aid them, um, and let's not worry if they're connected to the government. But the Marine general there at the time, General Zilmer, he issued a letter and said, no, you shouldn't do that. Um, that we will work with official government forces and they're gonna get their salaries from the government, their arms from the government. It's fine for us to work with such forces, um, but we're not gonna go arming militias like this because we're not gonna create death squads. Um, and he had a lot of criticism for that um, at the time. But I think about it in retrospect, why would I want any U.S. officer, any, any person serving there to have sullied their morals in some way back during that time period because they felt that there was this, 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 this great interest for the United States? Because looking at back at it from 2021, I think most people would say, well, actually, interest wasn't that great. Actually, these things weren't quite worth it. When you're there, it feels like you have to do something for the country. Later on, that changes. So, I mean, that's something I think people should think about and somebody tell officers to when you're going into these places and when you're, and you're, and when you're going to be working maybe with non-state actors and maybe with state actors. Then in the end, it's just probably not worth it. I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Maybe, Johan, we can go to you with any closing thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm... I'm um... Let me address this from the point of due diligence more broadly. So I, I, I think it's an incredibly important process that we need to continue and to build on um, together uh, with international partners, uh, the UN bilateral partners, 
governments and 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 others uh, because on one hand we we cannot continue to sort of uh, provide support to governments forces or non-state actors and on the other hand uh, uh, criticizing them for uh, violations or human rights abuses so but it it becomes uh, the impact will will not be there unless we can also uh, make sure that we, uh, those who are working for an end to the conflict and working for the protection of a civilian population, if if we can't get our analysis and strategies together, uh, then we will not have that impact on on those uh, groups or or entities. So that analysis and then coming together to have joint strategies, I I think this is incredibly important. Then I really want to support Erica's point on that um, due diligence generally takes a lot of resources. Uh, and this is really a call for uh, ensuring uh, that if we have uh, the resources to engage, as we do uh, in, in many of these areas, conflict and non-conflict, there has to be also investment into these uh, due diligence and, and sort of building um, national protection systems, and we need to do that as as a a parcel parcel of 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 the work that we do, and and that needs to be in projects and and missions so from the beginning, because if it's not built in there, and there is the uh, the different types of resources necessary for analysis, technical uh, and um, resources for following up and, and building all of those elements that are important to have protection and, and accountability, then we're not going to be uh, successful. So this is some of the lessons learned uh, that we have from the UN, but uh, really from the beginning, uh, make sure that we have the resources to do the work because otherwise it will be incredibly hard to uh, to be successful. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe we can we can close with Ivan. Well, I don't know whether I'm going to close, but I'll just chip in a few uh, few words uh, along the lines of this uh, short-term, long-term, medium-term nexus. And for sure, I, I can easily see that uh, such support as we've been talking about today uh, will remain relevant uh, for reasons of including combat and terrorism, protecting civilians, responsibility to protect uh, and the like. Um, and I, I can only encourage everybody involved in the field to 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 think, uh, continue to think creatively, and perhaps even beyond that, uh, on how how this support can then also support some of the other strands, including uh, civilian governance, uh, good governance, uh, and obviously the uh, the broader uh, political piece that that is there in, in all contexts. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to just emphasize that I think, you know, what Eric has done is incredibly important, not only because these approaches aren't going away anytime soon, Eric referenced Mali and what happens next in Afghanistan, um, but there seems to be a real resilience of viewing these um, forces as shortcuts. And what your work really illustrates is that there are no shortcuts when it comes to due diligence, when it comes to training these forces, when it comes to mobilizing them effectively or you know, at a larger scale, at least anyway, um, that nothing can really substitute for real investment on the ground. And I think that's true in a broader sense and touches on what Carter said about you know, this, this is not a quick fix. Nothing can substitute for the kind of political strategy and long-term thinking that is so 
often absent in these contexts in which these forces I think are a symptom of in some respects. Um, but I want to thank all of our panelists. I want to thank GPPI as well for, for co-convening with us and uh, to our audience as well. I apologize for not getting to all of the wonderful questions, um, but we hope you'll join us again soon for another event uh, and have a great rest of the day.